Okay, um, let me, apologies for lateness, problems with photocopying. Let me start handing out the photocopies. They're mainly the passages, the extra passages from um, uh, the first and third essays of the three essays on sexuality. But I've also um, given you an extract from Struhl Peter, a wonderful German children's book um, that might give you some glimpse into um, the question of little hands. <coughs> okay, have people been able to get um, all the text for this week? Yes, one way or another, either from downloading or from purchase. Good, okay. <coughs> what I'm handing out then, uh, uh, yes, yeah, extracts. First of all, I'll send one round one way and then one the other. Uh, the opening pa paragraph of essay one and the definition of the drive from essay one. And um, uh, a, a, a brief extract from essay three, which in a way is looking forward to where we'll be going next with the figure of Laplanche. Okay, so let me give you that. So you should have three extracts from I also um, gave you a link in the email I sent out uh, <coughs> to an entry in a contemporary non-psychoanalytical um, encyclopedia. Um, <coughs> uh, uh, and it's very interesting to get a contemporary American um, uh, non-psychoanalytic psychological uh, commentary on the notion of infantile sexuality. Um, thanks. <coughs> because it is um, still a, a, an extremely controversial um, idea. Um, it's become more so. I think there was a phase in, from the 40s through to the 60s or 70s where people were cool about that. And now, in the wake of the whole um, cultural panic around pedophilia, um, the whole idea of, of, of a, a specifically infantile eroticism or sexuality has become culturally problematic again. <coughs> so it's interesting that... <coughs> coming from America, where that cultural panic is, is just so crazy, um, uh, even by comparison with the, <coughs> the stuff about um, devil worship, etc., that was going on here um, at some point. <coughs> um, that, that um, nevertheless, non-psychoanalytical psychologists are still um, prepared to talk about, acknowledge, and give some sort of account of um, infantile, um, sexual, I mean, infantile sexuality. <coughs> okay. Um, oh yes, I should send this around. Let me just send also this around. Uh, uh, week five. Let's just we could just sign that and send that around. Okay. <coughs> so we're moving now <coughs> um, to uh, uh, 
the, the moment where Freud engages with the question of sexuality in general, as it were. Sexuality has been there as an increasingly central element in his account of both neurosis, the neuroses, hysteria, um, obsessional neurosis, and at that point in the 1890s, um, paranoia, which he was still classifying as a neurosis, and in his account of dreams. <coughs> um, but he still is in some sense, qu until quite late in the, um, in the 1890s, still working with the traditional notion of, uh, of sexuality as something that normally, properly, kicks in with puberty. Um, and he's been dealing with people and with psychological syndromes that have been linked to um, a, as it were, premature sexualization of the non-sexual infant or child. Uh, and that's where the question of pathology comes in, as it were. Such a premature, unnatural, improper sexualization of the child um, has as its sequelae or after effects um, the range of psychological disturbances um, uh, that <coughs> he begins by trying to understand in relationship to the notion of trauma or through the notion of trauma as this um, <coughs> excessive input um, that impacts with psychological violence uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a child who is incapable of responding properly to it, of dealing with it, processing it, making sense of it, integrating it in some way. Um, uh, so the notion of trauma as, this, uh, as something that is um, an, an excessive excitation or input that um, breaches boundaries, breaks down, um, breaks down uh, mental barriers and um, leaves a kind of troubling, troubling deposit. <coughs> he comes increasingly to feel um, that, that that account won't do um, and it's not just that he's changing his mind about the causes of neurosis or indeed the causes of dreams, um, <coughs> but, he's think, but it's not just a change of cause, but a change in the object to be explained, not just a change in the explanation, but a change in the object of explanation. So a major sort of shift of theoretical problematic or theoretical paradigm is taking place. Um, and you can see it sort of happening gradually, thanks, in the letters to Fleece um, through the 1890s, where um, increasingly he's coming to feel um, that even with the earliest infant, um, <coughs> there is something, there is a susceptibility, a disposition, a, a, a capacity for, um, for sexual excitation of some kind, um, but it's puzzling because it's, it's not where you would expect to find it. Um, and how do, you, how do you explain that in relationship to a whole set of assumptions about um, sexuality as an instinctual force which he inherits and, and initially takes for granted? Okay. <clears throat> By the time he comes to write the three essays on the theory of sexuality, um, he has, uh, in a way, dismantled or deconstructed that, those conceptual models. Um, and indeed, the fact that the first of the three, he doesn't begin with infantile sexuality, uh, which is the second essay of the three essays, that the first essay is called The Sexual Aberrations. And in particular, he considers homosexuality. Okay? Um, because by consideration of the sexual aberrations, as they are 
that they are thought to be. Um, and they range from sadism to masochism, homosexuality, anything that doesn't look like a sort of culturally normative um, uh, heterosexual coupling. Um, <coughs> by consideration of these, he sort of he, he dismantles the conceptual assumptions behind the traditional understanding of sexuality. And you can see him beginning to do that in a very kind of rhetorically polemical way in the very opening paragraph of Essay 1. Okay, and I'll just read that out. I'll just hand that out to you. <coughs> For those of you who don't have your own copies of the standard edition volume. Uh, the fact of the existence of sexual needs in human beings and animals is expressed in biology by the assumption of a sexual instinct. On the analogy of the instinct of nutrition, that is, that is of hunger, everyday language possesses no counterpart to the word hunger but science makes use of the word libido for that purpose. And the assumption then is that libido, like hunger or like the nutritional instinct, is an instinct, is an instinctual mechanism or force. Uh, he goes on to say, popular opinion has quite definite ideas about the nature and characteristics of this sexual instinct. It is generally understood to be one, absent in childhood. To, to set in at the time of puberty in connection with the processes of coming to maturity and to be revealed in the manifestations of, three, an irresistible attraction exercised by one sex upon the other. While its aim is presumed to be sexual union or at all events actions leading in that direction. We have every reason to believe, however, that these views give a very false picture of the true situation. Okay, so that's his beginning. He sets up this traditional paradigm that sexuality is, is an instinctual uh, force or, uh, or, or mechanism <coughs> where the notion of instinct obviously involves something like being uh, life-preserving or self-preservative self in some way. Um, and here, um, uh, a slight change where, where hunger is about keeping the individual subject alive um, sexuality, understood as instinctual, is about ke is, is keeping the species alive, reproducing the species, preserving the life of the species, and not um, uh, so much the life of the individual. That would be an account of sexuality as instinctual, as um, coming into play at puberty, as being uh, genitally centered, uh, and as being heterosexual in its in its object. Um, <coughs> so. And he begins by kind of challenging that paradigm by considering uh, the range of so-called sexual aberrations and uh, <coughs> where there is a disconnect between um, uh, the sexual force or power or drive and the object of that drive um, and, uh, and, also the, the, and also the aim. So I want to say something then about... Um, Freud's sorry, critique of the instinctual, the notion of the instinctual, and his displacement of it. He's not denying that we have instincts, um, but he's displacing the notion of the instinctual. And he takes over um, uh, the, the basic conceptual categories of biologically based instinct theory. That is to say, an instinct is made up of um, a force or pressure. It has an aim and it fulfills that aim in relationship to a given object. Okay, so pressure 
aim, um, and object are, are crucial, but also it's localized in, in, into certain um, uh, bodily processes and bodily sites. Um, so um, the feeding digestion sequence is obviously tied up with very specific uh, bodily processes and biological mechanisms. Um, <coughs> now, that structure is assumed to be fixed in the in with the instinct, okay? So that um, uh, if you think of um, uh, the feeding, the digestion sequence, particularly in the newborn infant, if it doesn't get um, very pr a pretty precise range of nutrients, okay, then it will the infant will die, the newborn will die. So it needs a very specific range of objects, whether it's the mother's milk or some, or some close approximation to the mother's milk, okay, then the infant will die. So the object is, in that sense, very determined, okay. Um, <coughs> Here's the old story of, uh, of Henri Quatre, of the, or who was to become Henry IV in France. At that point, he was uh, king of an independent kingdom in the south of France of Gascony. And his newborn first son, he gave uh, uh, some sour Gascon wine and a pickle as soon as he was virtually delivered from the womb. And, uh, and legend has it that the child uh, crowed with delight and was therefore hailed to be an authentic Gascon. I think you can see that um, trying to sustain the child alive on sour Gascon wine and pickles, or gherkins rather, not pickles, um, <coughs> would have led to its death pretty quickly. However, in instinctively as a Gascon, he was supposed to have responded to these foods. So a very specific and entirely determined set of objects in relationship to that. Um, and it's bound up with a certain bodily processes, with the mouth, the digestive system, etc. Um, so it's, it's localized bodily, in a bodily way. And the aim is digestion, to, to break up, to break down, um, to metabolize um, uh, the nutrients from a very specific object. So there's a kind of fixed structure about the model of the instinct. And you know, various forms of, of instinctual theory have, have, have complicated that structure in a variety of ways, made it perhaps slightly less fit fixed, um, made it um, uh, uh, susceptible to um, various um, uh, co further complexities. Um, but the, uh, the other major point about the notion of instinct is, of course, that it's, it's, um, it's species-specific, okay? Um, uh, so my instincts, if I have them or where I have them, are going to be the same as any other member of my species, okay? Uh, I don't have a unique set of instincts, okay? Uh, I share my instinctual, I inherited in instincts with the other members of my species. So they're inherited, you can't just make up your own, um, okay? And uh, <coughs> they're in, they're, so they're inherited um, and they're species specific, they're not acquired by the individual, okay? Now, Freud, well, while still using those categories, pressure, aim, object, um, <coughs> um, uh, source, um, nevertheless, carrying them over, he breaks from the model of uh, the biological model of, of the instinct. He never breaks absolutely from it, and I think at some level, 
uh, he's always sort of thinking to or hoping to get back to it in some way because he sees it as some sort of material basis or ground for the psychological processes and structures um, he seems to be impelled into describing. But he's always thinking that he will get back at some level to the biological and the instinctual as a kind of bedrock of the psychological. Uh, he uses that phrase um, at various points. However, in Freud's German, um, he uses two terms. Um, oh, I got it. <laughs> I didn't think. I'm always forgetting to bring my um, white bird, right, whiteboard. I've got something to erase it with, but I haven't got anything to write it on. Okay, so you'll have to uh, write this down yourselves. Um, in Freud's German, there are two terms. There's instinct, spelt with a K instead of a C. Okay. And there's trieb, T-R-I-E-B. And he uses both terms. Okay. Um, he predominantly uses the term trieb, and he doesn't always use it consistently. But there is, nevertheless, uh, if you look at his vocabulary and the context in which the two terms prop turn up, there is nevertheless overall a dominant um, uh, differen implicit differentiation between them, okay, between instinct and trieve in Freud's German. Unfortunately, he never wrote, or at least if he did, it never survived, a theoretical reflection on, on, on trieve as being uh, a different <coughs> concept from instinct. But his usage of it, so it's what French history and philosophy of science would call a practical concept um, or um, uh, an implicit one. Um, there, there, is a, there, is the, there is an important distinction between them. Unfortunately, Strachey, uh, in translating Freud's German in the standard edition, has chosen to translate uh, Freud's term trieb by the English word instinct. This is a disastrous decision because um, it collapses that implicit but crucial distinction in Freud's German. Okay? Uh, and the difference between trieb, which is standardly translated as drive. So the implicit distinction and its consequences between drive and instinct is put at risk by that translation. Okay? And in many cases just completely disappears uh, uh, um, in, in later writers. Um, the notion that the tree might be different from instinct just gets lost. Um, it's been retrieved in the French tradition. Um, initially retrieved by Lacan, who denied that Freud used the term instinct at all, which is just wrong, because uh, he was wanting to privilege the notion of tree. Okay. Uh, <coughs> uh, and, and, and developed uh, uh, at length by Laplanche, who, who was trying to think through um, the complexity of the relationships between the instinctual and the drive. It's true that Strachey does footnote. Um, he tells you at the beginning, I'm translating Trieb as instinct. Um, some of you may not agree with this, but that's what I've chosen to do. And he does tell you when actually in Freud's German, uh, Freud is using the, the German instinct with a K or adjectives and verbal forms that are derivatives of that. He will put in a footnote to tell you. But that, I think, isn't enough, really, to hold the conceptual distinction between the two terms. So the text in English that you'll be reading will say uh, instinct and instinctual uh, overwhelmingly, but actually what Freud is writing in the German is trieb, 
So, and that makes things complicated. You have continually to sort of remind yourself of that fact uh, and interrupt the assumption uh, uh, by which you um, track back what Freud is saying about Treve in the German onto the English notion of the instinct or onto the biological notion of the instinctual. Okay. And there's a slippage between the orders of the psychological and uh, or the psychical uh, and and the biological. Okay. For Freud, um, as he says uh, in a passage we'll look at in a second, uh, the drive, the Treve, is on the border between the, the mental or psychical uh, and the biological. Okay. It's, it's a border concept for Freud. Um, for a later thinker like Laplanche, it's completely psychical. Um, uh, however, um, so, that, so that's my first um, uh, crucial uh, uh, point. Um, also, that with the Treeb, um, the fixity of the relations between the four categories that make up uh, the Treeb, borrowed from instinct theory, the fixity of the relationship between source, um, pressure, object, and aim um, is, is completely um, sort of uh, undermined. That is to say, there is no innate fixed connection between the treeb and its object, uh, or the treeb and its aim, and even puzzlingly, the treeb and its source. Okay. Now this becomes clear uh, in in the course of reading essay two. Infantile sexuality, okay. um, where um, sexuality is displaced as a genitally centered um, instinctual uh, mechanism that comes into play at puberty. Uh, and it becomes centered on, um, you know, it could be dispersed over the whole body. Okay. There are what Freud calls erotogenic, it's translated into English, erotogenic or erogenous zones of the body, which are sites or for the emergence of the drive, and, and, or of the drives plural, because that's the other uh, effect of, what, of his argument, is that there is not a single drive, but a plurality of drives. Okay. <coughs> and particularly in the earlier stages, uh, what he calls a polymorphous, perverse infantile eroticism, okay, which is dispersed around and fragmented between various sites and sources uh, in the infantile body. There's that capacity for excitation, pleasure, arousal at all sorts of different sites in the body. Um, and these give rise to um, wishful repetitions, which are, which are very strong, the desire to repeat pleasurable experiences located at that site of the body. So there's a decentering of the instinctual model of sexuality. It's not that it, 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 it doesn't also include the genital, um, but it only becomes genital at a later stage of development. Okay. Um, uh, so genitality is, sim is simply one, one site and one um, manifestation of a larger force, libido, um, which can be active at different sites of the body. Uh, and so the notion of what are called sexual perversions, again, the notion of perversion is implicitly de dismantled or deconstructed. If you think of the metaphor built into the notion of perversion, if you think that is to say of the, uh, of the Latin etymology of the word pervertere, um, which is mean, means to turn aside. Something is turned aside um, from the right path, as it were. It's a deviation. Um, 
and indeed a pervert is said to be deviant, that, and again, de via, being, you've been turned aside from the via or path or way. Okay, so that presumes you, you're there first, and something has happened to you to turn you aside from, to deviate you from uh, 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 the normal, the correct path um, into uh, paths that are considered to be perverse. Uh, <coughs> now, of course, what Freud's argument is, is it turns that, the implicit metaphor behind the con that concept on its head. We don't start there, okay, we, we, we may end up there um, if we succeed in um, internalising the culture and family's norms, but we don't start there, as it were. We start from a position of what he calls polymorphous perversity. That is, polymorphous means many f taking many forms. Okay, so an original perversion, <laughs> okay, which is like a contradiction in terms, um, <coughs> because you haven't been anywhere else to be deviated to it. You've, that's where you've started, taking many forms, and, and entirely regulated by uh, uh, forms of repetition that are pleasure-seeking. And here pleasure, uh, pleasure is being thought as, um, and there's a contradiction in Freud's thought, which we'll uh, consider in more detail when we think about the death drive next term, uh, between the pleasure as um, a reduction of tension and pleasure as a seeking for excitation and increased tension, as it were. But in this account of the, of the drive, the drive... Um, uh, the drive emerges as, um, uh, a, uh, as, as heightened tension. Uh, uh, and, 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 and that tension is then reduced by a certain activity. Uh, and he even invokes at some points almost like the itching-scratching model. Uh, <coughs> it's something that emerges in a certain point around the certain um, parts of the body where, where ner nerves are concentrated and which is highly excitable. Um. Uh, and the tension that, is, that arises at that point is then reduced by uh, an activity, of s uh, some activity or other. And it could be any activity. So uh, if you think, and the, the classic case is to take the oral, um, uh, the oral drive as, as, as uh, exemplary. Um, the infant's first um, uh, site of uh, pleasure and focus is the mouth, the pleasures of the mouth. Uh, because, of course, that's what the infants, uh, whether it's suckled at the breast or not, is focused on. Good things that come in and fill the hole in the belly, um, that, that, that reduce the tension of hunger, uh, okay. um, and, and, and therefore produce an equilibrium, reproduce an equilibrium that has been uh, lost. Uh, and that, that notion of um, almost automatic reflex-like processes that seek to achieve a, an appropriate level of equilibrium, whether it's blood sugar levels, whether it's body temperature levels, there are optimum levels in the, in the processes of the body, which if they are not achieved, put the infant's um, life at risk, as it were. So uh, the in infant nervous systems are extremely vulnerable, as anyone involved in childcare knows. Uh, okay, so the child can be at risk of overheating or, or, or losing temperature. Um, uh, and uh, there has to be an intervention from the outside. It doesn't have self-writing mechanisms in its initial phases. Interventions from the outside um, with, with mammals uh, uh, have to take place in order for that, the body to be stabilised. 
and the bodily processes to be stabilized. It's the difference between mammals and non-mammal species where, um, you know, sort of uh, baby tortoises or, um, or uh, uh, fish or whatever don't cuddle up to mummy, uh, as it were. They're extruded in the form of eggs and they hatch and then they, and they you know, from then on they're on their own or they're in a crowd. Um, whereas the mammal is attached to the mother and the mother's body and the interventions of the nurturing adult um, to stabilize uh, a bodily system that is not self-writing, as it were. Uh, it's that, that vulnerability of the bodily system that requires the relationship to, the dependent relationship to a nurturing adult, which Laplanche will make a lot of, and to some extent, um, but only to some extent Freud does. So with the oral drive uh, in Freud's account, the processes of meeting the child's needs of putting something in the mouth that will, uh, that will that is digested, metabolized, uh, and reduces the tensions of hunger and fills the inner void, as it were, that fundamental biological and instinctual process nevertheless gives rise, gives rise to a, what he calls a, a neighbor product, a, a byproduct, um, which is a pleasurable excitation of that very sensitive area of the mouth and tongue. And the point at which the drive can be it first emerges then is through various pleasure-seeking <coughs> repetitions that take place in the absence of need and in the absence of the object of need. Okay, so uh, what, what impels the drive is not need, which, uh, <coughs> which is met by instinctual mechanisms uh, <coughs> and, and by um, nurturing support. Okay. Um, the when the child starts putting anything in its mouth and sucking, its thumb, its fist, its foot, a dummy, you name it, in it goes. If you watch infants in that stage, you know, they really <coughs> do relate to the world through their mouths, as it were. They encounter something new for the first time and they <coughs> shove it in their mouth to see what it's like. Suck, suck it and see what is this like. Is it good? <coughs> good. Swallow it. If it's horrible, spit it out. So a very primitive mode of relationality is implied in that um, uh, through, on the back of, as it were, and over and above, and, but on the back of, um, that, that fundamental um, biological instinctual process. And it's when that gets replayed, when the infant is not hungry or crying because it's hungry, um, and when uh, 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 the, mother, the mother's breast or the, the mother's supplying milk uh, isn't there, the child starts pleasuring itself by sucking whatever it can get hold of, as it were. And particularly, uh, a doubling of pleasure, as Freud points out, if it can suck some sensitive part of its own body surface, as it were, and become self-pleasuring in some way. Okay. And so a, a, a pattern of repetitions is then initiated. So in Freud's account, the drive emerges out of, at the site of, and out of the fundamental instinctual bodily processes, but, as it were, turns aside from them uh, and engages in its pleasure-seeking activities, uh, not to fulfil a biologically determined need, but to repeat pleasurable, a pleasurable, past pleasurable experience. Okay. Um, and uh, anything will do, up to a point. Um, in other words, there is no fixed innate connection 
between the oral drive and its objects, and as the infant becomes a child and the child grows up and becomes an adult, a whole succession of objects, uh, as it were, uh, in a metonymic chain, substitute for the original object. And this relationship in Freud's German, uh, he refers to as one of Anlehnung, uh, which means leaning on. Okay? The, the drive leans on the instinct in its first moment of emergence. And it then deviates from that. It turns aside um, and, and engages in its own uh, repetition activities, as it were. So there's a moment of, in which one leans on the other. The drive leans on the instinctual functioning of the body or a particular bodily site. Okay. And it then becomes, uh, by, partly by turning around on itself, the, uh, on its, own, on its own body through a, a, an autoerotic moment, uh, uh, it then becomes independent of the instinctual. Okay. So there's an auto, the, the, the turning around on the child's own body or the infant's own body is a crucial moment in which uh, the drive emerges as such um, in, uh, <coughs> in a displaced relationship to, it, to, to the process on which it originally leaned. Um, and the, uh, so its relationship to aim and to object then are flexible and, and open to substitution. Um, but so puzzlingly, um, as, as Freud makes this argument about uh, a multiplicity of potential zones, initially some parts of the body are, are more um, physiologically and anatomically predisposed to excitation. Um, but in principle, um, as he works this through over a series of texts, he comes to argue that in principle, almost any area of the body can be erogenized, okay, and that the and can ha and can have displaced onto it um, a drive processes, pleasure-seeking drive processes. But nevertheless, he he gives priority to um, certain key sites mouth and anus, and then genitals, um, uh, but then skin surface, uh, okay, sensitive areas of the skin surface. Now, I think what's at stake quite often um, in these uh, uh, body sources for uh, the various drives is some point of um, either a break in the body surface um, where something comes in and something comes out or a kind of infolding or turning in of the body in some area. Uh, and what's at stake here is some kind of inside-outside, some very primitive inside-outside distinction in which the infant is encountering some things that come in and things that go out uh, and they, how they can be sites of uh, excitation. Um, also sites of threat um, and, and potentially sites of anxiety. But also it's through its major orifices and what are done to them that the infant relates to the outside world and, re and, and relates to uh, the adult other, okay? And the administrations and the interventions of the nurturing adult, who is usually the mother, but, but doesn't have to be. Um, okay, so you can see how then um, uh, the notion of drive um, uh, uh, and activities that are drive-impelled um, uh, both ghost and yet are differentiated from the instinctual and then sort of develop an organisation and a complexity of their own. Um, 
so sexual sexuality in that sense then um, is something that um, begins in this dispersed, fragmented um, way uh, in in infancy, and whose aim is not um, even when it, when the child's gen genitality becomes excited is not. There's no innate pre-given aim like reproduction. Okay. Um, the, for Freud, the drive, the economy of the drive is really to do with uh, the rising of tension and tension reduction, which is experienced as pleasurable. And on the back of that, other things can be grafted, okay. um, depending on, really, um, the whole structure of uh, in, uh, adult-infant uh, relations and, um, uh, and the context in which that takes place. And one can see this in, in, in being exemplified, of course, in the case study of little hands. And, and, and uh, uh, it, at, at one level, uh, Freud's, um, Freud's satisfaction with that case is to do with the way in which uh, it exemplifies um, uh, some of his arguments about uh, infantile sexuality. Um, on the other hand, there is a whole dimension in the case study of Little Hands which are absent from the essay on infantile sexuality. Uh, and one can signal that with one word, fantasy. The case study of Little Hands is overwhelmingly preoccupied with fantasy, the fantasy dimension, if you like, the phantasmatic dimension of the body, the bodily processes, but also the phantasmatic dimension of the infant or the child's relationship to its nearest others. Okay. For me, the, the, the wonderful moment that instantiates fantasy and its displaced relation to the real is uh, the point at which little Hans is going through some sort of anal phase and he's very interested in his anus and what comes out and what might come out of other people's anuses and, and how that may be pleasurable or not, or yucky. Um, and then his, his father notices um, that he's in the broom closet quite a lot of the time. And so he kind of he investigates what is little hands doing in, his, in, the, in, the, in the family broom closet. And he says, I'm in my WC. And what are you doing in your WC? And he says, I'm looking after my children. And what are you doing with your children? Oh, you know, the sorts of things one does with children, he says. So he doesn't go into the family toilet to do this. He's quite clear in his own mind, you know, what's real and what isn't, so to speak, at one level. But he's, he's reconstructed and reconfigured um, the, uh, the room cupboard as his WC, where he can kind of replay in fantasy pleasurable relationships to his imaginary children, uh, which are based on the children he plays with when they go on holiday to Gumunda, and you know, so Berta and Olgal and, uh, and, and all the others. Uh, so Little Hands in his WC, which is the family room closet, is kind of a little exemplary instance of the, of the phantasmatic dimension that is absolutely central to the case study and completely absent, like completely absent from the three essays. It's quite extraordinary that Freud doesn't talk about fantasy. Okay? Uh, and I think it, what it shows at work in the three essays is something quite important. This is a profoundly radical text of Freud's in which he kind of breaks from and dismantles a kind of instinctual, functional, utilitarian, if you like, um, uh, teleological model of, uh, of sexuality um, and initiates a quite uh, radical uh, redescription of it. And yet, <coughs> at some level, he wants to see it as nevertheless 
um, somehow or other arising from, uh, and, and, and even if in a displaced way, impelled by um, the body and its nature, as it were. Um, it, it comes from within. Okay? Um, the timing may be different, um, there will be different occasions, but this is like the unfolding of something that is uh, an in innate potentiality and... And, um, and so there's, there's a kind of ambiguous relationship to teleology, where teleology um, is, is a, any conceptual model that has an end point that's pre-given, okay, that is guaranteed in advance. It, an end point or telos uh, from the Greek um, uh, uh, that is guaranteed in advance, as it were. So the break from, from instinct to tree seems to undermine that at the level, at the local level, um, uh, <coughs> that there is no innate fixed object and no innate fixed aim to the, um, to the drive. Um, and yet, um, though Freud talks about the erotic moment, autoerotic moment, where the drive turns around on itself and emerges as such, um, there's no exploration of fantasy. That actually, uh, that, that, that the phantasmatic dimension is the dimension, if you like, in which uh, sexuality proper um, the sexuality of the drives uh, uh, is coterminous with fantasy, as it were. Um, so the absence of fantasies is, 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 is extraordinary. And it is to do with this model of something that is spontaneously unfolding. Okay? These things are inevitable. Um, they will, and and, and in initially, in the earliest version of the three essays, um, infantile sexuality is a chaos. It has no inbuilt, innate structures. Um, it is a, 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 a proliferating um, uh, uh, profusion of, of things whose, that are unintegrated with each other um, uh, and uh, only gradually and with difficulty become um, subsumed under the genitals and then finally under various culturally approved um, aims. Um, he never gives up on that idea. Um, but nevertheless, at some level... It, he also, there's a kind of assumption that he never quite abandons fully um, that, that, that there is uh, a return to some kind of grounding, innate grounding, as it were. And that means that the relationship to the adult, to the other, is always going to be secondary, okay? Supportive. Um, the, the other, the parenting adult, is a figure onto whom things are projected, um, uh, uh, various feelings, uh, love, hate, whatever, um, uh, the drives model themselves on them. Um, but the adult other is, is just presumed to be, um, as it were, a secondary support framework for things, in, innate program that will unfold. So even if he's displaced the drive and uh, a drive-based sexuality from um, a biological, biologically based notion of instinct, even though he's done that, he's still at some level um, conceptually... His, well, there's this tendency. There are more than one tendency in Freud's thought. There is this tendency uh, to model conceptually the drive on, 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 on the biological. That is to say, it will go through a series of set phases and he organises the different bodily zones into a sequence, oral, anal, um, uh, 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 phallic, he inserts the phallic stage, and then the, gen the properly genital stage, as it were. He, he organises them into what he calls an ontogenetic sequence, um, <coughs> where the 
not a genetic, it simply means the genesis, the origin of, the be of a being, uh, where the, be the sexual being um, uh, comes into being through a series of phases that are pre-given, uh, as it were. And the adult functions as a secondary support figure. Um, now, um, I want to finish by just reading out the two other passages um, from the second passage from Essay 1, where he gives his definition of, of, of the drive. That's on page 168 of uh, Essay 1 of the Sexual Aberrations. Now, the English is saying instinct. We have to kind of cross it out and read treep or drive, okay? By a drive, I'm going to, I'm, and I'll do that when I read it out. By a drive is provisionally to be understood the psychical representative, so it's a mental entity, a psychical representative, this is the top of the left-hand side, page 168, um, of an endosomatic, continuously flowing source of stimulation. Endosomatic means within the body, something that originates from within the body. Okay. So it's the psychical representative of an endosomatic, continually flowing source of stimulation that wells up from within, as contrasted with a stimulus which is set up by single excitations coming from without. So the drive pressure is, is continuously flowing and it emerges from within, from the body. The concept of drive is thus one of those lying on the frontier between the mental and the physical. The simplest and likeliest assumption as to the nature of drives would seem to be that in itself a drive is without quality. It's merely pressure, quantity. And so far as mental life is concerned, is only to be regarded as a measure of the demand made upon the mind for work. It's quite an important formulation. As a measure of the demand from the body made on the mind for work, that the, for work, that the mind should think through work, mentally process. Um, this, this pressure coming from the body, as it were. What distinguishes the drives from one another and endows them with their specific qualities is their relation to their somatic, their bodily sources, and to their aims. Okay, so the anal drive, the oral drive, have different aims um, and, diff and a, a different sequence of objects from, say, the, from genitality, the genital drive. What distinguishes the instincts from, or the drives from one another, okay, uh, their specific quality comes from their different sources. The source of a drive is a process of excitation occurring in an organ. And the immediate aim of the drive is the removal of this organic stimulus. So stimulus reduction, tension reduction, is what drive activity is about in this, in this account of Freud's. And so this, so this is obviously tied up with then a plurality of drives uh, that are fragmented and dispersed around the body surfaces and its rim-like structures, its, its frontier um, sites, uh, a passage between inside and outside. Okay. So there, you know, it just wells up from within and the mind has to deal with it, process it, uh, and that, that processing um, through psychical representatives is the work of fantasy. But alas, as we see in the little Hans case, but alas, not in uh, the three essays. Now, I want to, uh, uh, um, I'm sure I'll pause at that moment. I, if, um, I'm throwing all this at you. I know you've done some reading of it. Questions, any questions, puzzles, or confusions about this? That
people want to raise. Alex. Um, when we're talking about pleasure in this model, I know there are two general conceptions, one being the absence of unpleasure in some kind, and the other model being the, the Epicurean, the idea it's a thing you can get. Now, I understood that the instinct one is just the absence of the tension, as in hunger. Yeah, reduces tension, yeah. Right, but was there a suggestion at some point that there's an active pleasure that comes along with that in or out? Yes, yes there is, because it's a seek a seeking to re repeat a previous pleasure. Okay, So there's a seeking after, there's an active seeking after, and, 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 and uh, a repetition of pleasurable processes to do with, in the absence of need, okay? So things are put in the mouth and, and the mouth is stimulated, not because the infant's hungry, okay, be but because it's repeating pleasurable processes and that's, that's the account. Of, so that makes it a more active questing or seeking, I guess. Um, so we're sort of changing the type of pleasure then when we go from dry to... Except it's still conceived by Freud a lot of the time, as, as a form of tension reduction, as he says here, okay, a, a stimulus, um, an organic uh, a stimulus is, is being removed by the drive, the activity that the drive gives rise to, like scratching an itch. So, well, how do you distinguish between pleasure well, um, it's, it's a bodily stimulation, bodily pleasure. Pleasure is a form of bo bodily stimulation and tension reduction. But if, if watching violence is like pleasurable. Watching? Violence, for yeah. instance. Then, then where's the distinction between that being sexual and that being sexual? Well, in a way, Freud's redrawing that boundary. Okay? And, this, and that's why, it's, why it was initially and still is a, a, con a very controversial argument. Okay? He's saying that things that might look that are non-genital and therefore are categorised in common sense ways, therefore not being sexual, are in fact sexual and are connected with, that these things all have underground connections with each other and that they're substitutable for each other uh, and displaceable with each other because they're of the same kind even though their manifestations are different. Okay, so that non-genital activities can be the recipient of, uh, of a genital sexuality that is displaced in relation to its aim and object. So the displaceability and substitutability of the drive rather than a fixed, innate structure. So he argued that all pleasures have at a base some sexual drive, Well, it, it, becomes, uh, it, it becomes in a question of stipulative definitions, doesn't it? How are you going to define the term? You, you could say, well, I'm going to keep the word pleasure for both hunger, for, you know, meeting hunger and, and, and um, oral, oral stimulation. But I then have to add an adjective to it. But I suppose if you keep the same term, that, that, very, that stipulative choice of, um, implies there is somehow or other a connection between the two. And in that case, I guess Freud would argue it's because one arose originally from the other, even though it becomes, as it were, virtually autonomous of the other, yeah. as it were. Okay. Is there a, a term, be it German, for the drive leaning on the instinct? I think Lehnung mentioned it. Yeah, Unlehnung. Let me spell it. Capital A N L E H N U N G. Lenung is the English leaning, 
and an is on. So leaning on and lanal. That specifies the relationship between the drive that emerges okay, uh, out of the, the original instinctual process um, uh, but deviates from it, as it were. Okay. Um, so in that sense, you could say, by definition, all um, sexuality is perverse in relationship to the instinctual functions of the body. All sexuality. There's no such thing as non-perverse sexuality. Because all sexuality is the drive that deviates from the original um, instinctual functions and proliferates you know, over and above the economy of, of instinct satisfaction, as it were. In fact, the term, I suppose, for the, the more common term for, that would differentiate pleasure from, from the instinctual is satisfaction, that, that the instinct seeks satisfaction and the drive seeks more and more developed and even florid <laughs> pleasures. As it were. Um, just one thing about that, though. Would that mean that um, it's, there's no genetic pointers or structuring towards particular sexual behaviour? Yeah. So, under Freud's theory, for instance, homosexuality wouldn't be, would just be another one of the sexual adversities like any other thing. And it wouldn't be structured towards, but by genetic coding. No. I mean, there have been disagreements between psychoanalysts around the question of homosexuality and um, an enormous regression, on the, particularly on the part of American psychoanalysts through the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, um, to a kind of implicitly biologically based version that sexuality, heterosexuality is guaranteed by a properly functioning uh, biology. And therefore, there must be some biological derangement to explain homosexuality. But that is a profoundly unfreudian position, as other psychoanalysts pointed out to them. So there was an internal fight about this. And there are still very conservative psychoanalysts who would hold to that kind of version. Um, it was particularly, so it's, a, it's an example of, if you like, um, a regression at the level of theory because of the pressure of, of cultural normativity, basically. But uh, uh, Freud's own position is, 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 is quite clear. Uh, about that, that there's no question of, of some kind of uh, degeneration involved in, 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 the, in the, what are called perversions. It doesn't involve, de the whole notion of degeneration is an inappropriate concept. It doesn't, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a category mistake, as it were. Okay. Now, we haven't been able, we haven't, we've got to finish now, we haven't had time to look at that paragraph in section three, but I'd like you to read it over, please, um, in relation to little hands. Okay. Um, and uh, we'll start there in the seminars tomorrow. <laughs>